Okay, thank you. So we have our disclaimer, which I guess uh, my the things I'll present today are simply my opinion, and uh, leave it at that. So I'd like to first of all thank the other contributors uh, for the work I'm about to present. First of all, Stephen Hammerschmidt was the uh, graduate student here at Kansas State University who completed uh, most of the actual physical work that I'll be presenting. Also wanted to acknowledge my colleagues, uh, Dr. Weijin Zhao and Dr. Pe Dr. Terry Beck in the Mechanical and Nuclear Engineering Department here at K-State, and also Dr. John Wu in the Industrial Manufacturing, Industrial Manufacturing Systems Engineering Department who assisted with the laser speckle portion of this work. Okay, so first of all, I'm going to uh, introduce uh, the problem, and then we'll talk about the surface strain relief, relief method, or if some of you are, may be familiar in the concrete world, uh, we have the uh, Schmidt hammer method. Since the graduate student was Stephen Hammerschmidt, we uh, refer to the strain relief method that he developed as the Hammer-Schmidt method. Uh, we'll then be talking about the test specimens, uh, the finite element models that were created, the results, and also conclusions from the research. Okay, so many bridges are approaching their design expectancy or exposed to larger demands than they were originally intended. And Dr. Novak shared this uh, statistic that 10 to 15 percent of our bridges are currently structurally deficient. And so in order to accurately assess the condition of a pre-stressed concrete bridge, that could be either a highway bridge or a railroad bridge, the remaining pre-stress level must be known. So this really falls into the category of how do we assess the actual capacity of a structure, which was a, a, one of the small portions of Dr. Novak's talk. And so as we look at a pre-stressed concrete bridge where we have higher loads than it was originally intended, if we have a lower pre-stress force remaining than we'd anticipate, we could actually be allowing service loads to be in the cracked section and have, a, therefore, a higher... Uh, uh, stress range when we subject this to a daily loading. And so we'd like to know what that remaining pre-stress force is. What complicates the issue is that there are time-dependent losses that decrease the pre-stress force in a member over time. And for some of our older structures, we don't even know the initial jacking force, let alone uh, perhaps a reasonable estimate of the losses. And so when we go out and instrument a bridge, we can look at the change in stress under a given loading but going back and to determine the original pre-stress force is, is something that's very, very difficult. Okay? And so the goal of the project was to develop an efficient and inexpensive way to determine the existing stress in a pre-stress concrete bridge member, and thus the condition of these bridges can be accurately assessed. And so from a taxpayer's point of view, when you boil this all the way down, if we have a number of bridges that we're looking at because they're deficient, how do we gain additional information so we can make the best analysis of the condition of each bridge? Okay. And so the surface strain relief method, it's the way that we uh, developed to do this, has some major steps. The first is we set up an initial strain measuring device, and you could use electrical resistance strain gauges, or also uh, in this pr project we introduced a laser speckle imaging device, which is a non-contact uh, strain measuring device. So we then get the baseline readings. We then core or notch around the strain uh, reading, to relieve the strain in that area. We measure the elastic rebound of the concrete and then relate the elastic rebound of the concrete to the average pre-stress force. Okay. And so we use electrical resistance gauges first in the study and the gauges were two inches long, which is quite a bit bigger than the aggregate size that we had in our, in our specimens. And we used a, an epoxy to mount the gauge to the surface of the bridge. 
Now, since we need to core around the gauge, we need to be able to attach and detach the lead wires. So after attaching the gauge, we put a uh, polyurethane and microcrystalline wax to protect it, and then we put a terminal block on top of the gauge using silicone. And that allowed us to take initial baseline readings, disconnect the gauge, then core around it, and uh, reattach it and measure the strain. Now, this method is what I'd call lightly destructive, and that the idea is we don't want to cut any rebar. So we'll just core into the, the concrete a distance to relieve the strain, but we're not cutting any steel. So it'd be very quick to go back with a epoxy and just pr uh, patch those, those small grooves that are made. Okay. The other way we looked at strain measurements was to use a laser speckle imaging device that was developed here at Kansas State University uh, with the colleagues I mentioned up front in addition to myself. Uh, in that device, we image a speckle pattern that's produced by reflecting a laser off the surface of the concrete. And when we shine a laser off the concrete, basically when the light waves come back, there's an interference pattern that takes place, and we save and record that image, and that serves as a fingerprint of that location. So we do that before and after the surface strain relief process, and we get a strain reading that way. So that's a non-contact method. And here's a picture of what that laser speckle imaging device looks like. At the time that we were doing the work, the smallest gauge length that we could get was actually too big to fit inside a core, so we only used this with a, a notching procedure that we'll describe here in the next few slides. So the two ways we used to relieve the strain, the first one, we used a 3-inch outs, outside diameter dry coring bit, so actually core into the surface around the gauge, and the other was to take a 4.5-inch dry diamond wheel and, and cut a notch up on each side of the gauge uh, using this tool. We really wanted to look at a dry uh, cutting method in this research because there, similar uh, work was, was done over in India. It was re referred to as the tree panning method where they actually used a wet coring process. Unfortunately, when you use a wet coring process, you're wetting the concrete and it swells and you introduce a lot of air into, into that. So from that reason, it was desirable to use a dry cutting process. Okay. So the procedure that we use in the lab, first of all, we wanted to mark the locations on the beam, and then we attach our strain gauges. Um, then we took, set all the gauges equal to zero. We balanced our gauges basically for the mechanical ones, or in the case where we used the laser speckle imaging device, we took initial baseline readings. Okay. Then we attached a coring guide into position and made sure that the, we could core precisely. And so it's, that's one of the important things. If you, these, this was done using a handheld drill, and if you don't attach some guide, the wobble will be such that you'll destroy the strain gauge. So we have a coring device that we simply attached in place, and then uh, we cored to depths of both 3 quarter inches and 1 inches based on our finite element modeling, and we'll be explaining that here in a little bit. The notch locations we cut to depths of 1 inch and 1 and a quarter inches deep. Okay, uh, so in the research, we did the cores first to three-quarter inches, then we took readings and extended to one inch. And so we found that it, by waiting 10 minutes, we would allow the, any, the heat that was generated to dissipate and things stabilized after about 10 minutes. For the notches, it stabilized actually faster, only about five minutes. Okay, so this shows the coring procedure, some initial test beams in the lab before we actually went to the test specimens. You see we just clamped a 2x4 in place so that the handheld drill could uh, be 
stabilized, and we create a nice uh, circular groove pattern right here around the strain gauge. Okay. In terms of the notching procedure, uh, that's the one we used with the laser speckle device. We, actually, we also did this with some strain gauges. We actually you can see the laser shines inside the, the notch pattern, and, or the lines, initial lines, and then we took our, uh, the grinder and made the grooves and then took uh, subsequent readings. The nice thing about the notch uh, from a user standpoint is you don't have to detach. If you use an electrical resistance strain gauge, there's no need to detach it. You can run the lead wire out the top and simply take readings before and after notching. Okay. So then how do we calculate the average pre-stress force through this procedure? Well, the relief strain that we measure is a positive retensile strain. So we simply do a sign, take a sign change. We relate the stress back to the strain through Hooke's law of the concrete. And so the modulus elasticity of the concrete we have to know pretty accurately. That could be done by taking some cores of the actual member and running an ASTM C469 test for modulus. Or we did that in the lab, and also we, we had the privilege of bringing the beam in, and so we were actually able to load it and look at the load deflection response. The other thing we did with our test specimens in the lab is we loaded them past cracking and then allowed them to unload and reload them to establish the cracking load very accurately, which told us what the pre-stress force was. So when we compare the results to the theoretical values, that's coming back either to vibrating wire gauge data for the rectangular beams or when we introduced other beams, it was obtained through low deflection response. Well, once we establish the stress, then we relate that to the pre-stress force using the elastic formula, minus P over A, minus P times the eccentricity of the pre-stress force, times location to where we're actually measuring, divided by the molar inertia, plus the dead load moment, which we calculate, times the eccentricity to the location we're measuring, divided by the moment of inertia. And so this is an elastic formula. So the creep that would occur um, in the member, we're assuming that we're going to get back the elastic portion and that those creeps, creep effects will be minimum for our short-term readings. And so when we looked at this, we wanted to look at both uh, recently produced members as well as members that were produced uh, many years ago. So uh, two types of specimens we had first. We had rectangular beams that were cast in 2010. These had two half-inch strands at the bottom. The strands were initially stressed to 202.5 psi, and the beams had a 28-day compressive stress of 7,440 psi. We also had some T-beams that were left over from a research project that I was involved in in 2002. They were cast, and these were uh, lightly reinforced. These had only two 3-8-inch strands. Strands were initially stressed to 202.5 psi and had a 28-day compressive strength of 7,040 psi. When we actually determined the remaining pre-stress force experimentally, uh, independent of the procedure, in this case, we cast vibrating wire gauges at the location of the, stra the strands. So we had both vibrating wire gauge data as well as we used a load deflection response. For the T-beams, we simply used the load deflection response. We loaded it past cracking, put it out. Uh, LVDTs across the crack and very precisely measured the crack opening load to back calculate what the remaining pre-stress force was. Okay, so I mentioned we did a lot of finite element work. The finite element work uh, Stephen Hammerschmidt did, he varied the depth of the cores, which were three inch diameter. He looked at three quarter inch cores, one inch deep, and one and a quarter inch deep cores. And the notches, we did several things. First of all, we varied the, not the depth of the notch from one inch to one and an eighth to one and a quarter. The spacing of the notches, how far apart they were, two and a half, three and three and a half, and also the length, how far up from the bottom the notches came. 
Okay? And this is an example showing the uh, stress distribution that you get using both methods. In this case, where we core around the strain gauge, and in this case would be for the notches. Now, interesting thing, what we found is that when we core around, or when we take our core, the stress that's relieved in that core is not constant. And so if you look over the two-inch gauge length, we start out with a, a positive value, which means we've actually relieved more than the initial compressive stress. When you get to the center of the gauge, it's, it's negative, which means we still have compression that hasn't been relieved. And so the, getting the, the right depth is, is very tricky uh, from an experimental point of view. But with the finite elements, it steers us right in to, to where we should be looking at. So in this case, with a one-inch deep core, the average strain was real close to zero, meaning we have the full strain relief. Okay, and so we looked at various depths. In this case, this is for the core. We looked at depths of three-quarter inches, one inch, and one and a quarter inch. And so in this case, this is a three-quarter inch depth. And you see most of the way across that, where we'd put our gauge, would be still in compression, meaning we're not going to relieve the full amount of strain. When we go to a one inch, we're kind of balancing between tension and compression and tension, and so the effect of that is real close to zero. In fact, what we did, we used Simpson's rule just to numerically integrate into these curves, and with a depth of three-quarter inch, we found we'd only relieved about 82% of the, the stress. At one inch, we were real close to uh, perfect relief of 100% of the stress, and when we were inch and a quarter, okay, we, we didn't relieve it all. We, still, we actually relieved more, because now we were in tension, so we were 112% of the stress relieved. Okay. For the notches, the notches were a lot more sensitive. If you recall the last slide, we're talking about changes um, of a quarter inch to see this change from compression left to uh, tension. When we go to the notches, we are much more sensitive. At a depth of one inch, we only release 76% of the stress. When we go to one and one-eighth, we would be uh, close to 100%, and this is one and a quarter. So the notches are a lot more sensitive uh, to the depth. We also looked at variable notch spacing. And in this case, we found a three-inch notch spacing to be about the best spacing if we wanted to have the, the stress relieved across that two-inch gauge length. Okay. The other thing we looked at, since many beams in uh, service would have perhaps a tapered web, the T-beam provided a way to look at that. And so the question was, when we actually core in to relieve it, should we be perpendicular to the side member, which would be the easiest way to clamp something on, or do we really want to be parallel with the bottom of the beam? And so we looked at that from a finite element standpoint, and this suggested that uh, both ways would be uh, acceptable. When we looked at the case where we were parallel, we relieved a little bit more stress. We were about 3% higher than the, the full relief, and we were perpendicular about 3% lower. So both seem to be within reason. So if you're going to be wrong by 3%, choose the easy way and just be perpendicular to the side. Now, so let's look at some of the results now. These are the results from when we cored the rectangular beams. This was the first set of beams that were cast. And you can see when we had a 3 quarter inch depth, the, the strains that we actually measured, the theoretical is based on the, um, the modulus that was known for the concrete and also the pre-stress force that we either determined from the vibrating wire gauges or from the cracking load. And you can see the three-quarter inch, uh, when the, the core was the three-quarter inch, we were within 7.6% average for the four cores. And at one inch, we were about 1.2%. Okay? And the finite element model indicated that one inch would, would be the, the, the best depth. Okay? 
for the second beam, at the three-quarter inch depth of notch, we still had 22.9% uh, error. We didn't, hadn't relieved it fully. Then we went to one inch. Our percentage errors are much better. For the second set of rectangular beams that were cast, these were cast a couple months later, again, we saw the same thing. With a three-quarter inch depth notch, we take the averages, and that's averages at 10.9, and for beam two, it's 16.7. At one inch depth, our averages come much lower. And, and what's important to look at when you see the averages here, we're going minus, plus, minus, minus, plus. We are at that one inch. We're, we're kind of 50% are, are higher and lower. So that really does indicate it's, it's the best depth compared to the three-quarter where we're mostly positive here. In terms of the, the, uh, the surface strain uh, results when we use the notches, we, used, we looked at the one-inch deep notches and one-and-a-quarter-inch notches, and you can see these values are, are quite a bit higher, all less than 20%, but uh, in most cases, the one-inch is pretty good, except for this one's higher. So one of the things we saw from the finite element, the notches are much more sensitive to the depth and the distances. And so we're within 20%. When it came to uh, the T-beams, when we did the cores, again, a three-quarter inch depth actually uh, worked out. That's a wrong number there. It's a typo. It's not. 1.2% it's is over here. This is uh, considerably higher than that. But the 1% uh, uh, sorry, the one-inch depth, we were within 1% error. We went to the second T-beam, and all of a sudden, we have these very large percentage errors in both the three-quarter inch deep cores and the one-inch deep cores. And we decided, what's going on there? So we actually broke out the core, and right behind the core, there was a stirrup, which means that this uh, method is going to be very sensitive as well to when there's a stirrup. And I believe Stephen looked at that finite element modeling and showed, yes, it's very sensitive. So it's not a big deal. It just means when we go out and do this in the field, we take an R meter, we locate the stirrups, and make sure we're coring uh, between those stirrup locations. Okay. Again, when we did the T-beams and the notches, whether we were one inch deep or one and a quarter inches, still very uh, higher percentage errors. Okay, you can see the, the two where we had the, uh, the rebar there. But in general, the notches were not as accurate. They're, they're quicker, but not as accurate. Okay, so the conclusions from the study. Uh, first one, a three-inch corbett used with a two-inch straight gauge resulted in an almost complete rebound of the surface strain when coring to a depth of one inch with an average error of less than 8%. When we went with the notches, a notch depth of one inch, spacing at three and a half and three, in, three inches uh, long, provides more varied results with an average error around 20%. It gets you in the right ballpark, but not nearly as accurate as the coring. The laser speckle imaging uh, device provided a quick and accurate way to measure the strain. And we're excited to be able to hopefully try this in the future by taking the laser speckle getting the gauge length small enough to work within a core so that we can just simply image before we core, do the coring, re-image without having to install the strain gauges in the field. Okay. We recommend that multiplication, uh, multiple locations uh, be tested to reduce the overall error. And from our research, it appears that if you took four cores, uh, you would really uh, minimize a lot of the errors that occur from each location. And some of that may be just the localized aggregate effect. You, you, you know, the aggregates themselves were three-quarter inches. If you're using a two-inch gauge length, there will be some localized effect, but that can be balanced out by taking uh, several cores. Finally, uh, strain drift due to temperature change can be mostly eliminated by allowing 10 minutes after coring and five minutes after notching. 
we noticed right away there's there is quite a bit of drift um, as much as maybe 20 25 percent of the total result and that's because of the heat when you core with a dry core bit you build up localized heat in that core but after 10 minutes that dissipated and uh, that, that seemed to be a good time so we would actually core start a stopwatch wait 10 minutes and then take our readings the finite element model successfully predicted the amount of release strain similar to the experimental results and could be used to determine the optimal method for other geometries and strand configurations. So we had excellent agreement uh, between the finite element and the cores in terms of the right depth and uh, distances. So that, that, that's very promising. Reinforcement around the core area significantly affects the measured strain, relief strain, and steps should be taken to prevent coring in the immediate vicinity of stirrups. And so before you go out and do this, take an R-meter, locate your steel, and then just make sure you're coring in between. Okay, and with that, I would like to thank the Mid-American Transportation Center for funding this, and also a special thanks to our Associate Director, Dr. Mustak Hossein here at K-State, who's done an excellent job uh, coordinating uh, these activities.